Okay, everybody, welcome back to our second talk today. It's from Professor David Sloan Wilson, and it's, it's going to be a talk on using evolutionary science to change behavior. So David is one of the world's foremost evolutionary thinkers and a gifted communicator about evolution to the general public. He is a sunny distinguished professor emeritus of biology and, and anthropology at Binghamton University in New York. In addition to his teaching and research work, David is president of Pro-Social World, an organization which aims to catalyze positive cultural change to consciously evolve who we are, how we connect with each other, and how we interact with the planet. He is passionate about making evolutionary science more accessible to a wider audience. And in 2019, he was invited to speak with the Dalai Lama about his work. David is the author of several books on evolutionary theory, including Atlas Hugged, which is his first novel, This View of Life, Evolution for Everyone, Darwin's Cathedral, does altruism exist and the co-author of pro-social along with paul atkins and stephen hayes you can learn more about his work at www.darwinianrevolution.com and follow him on twitter at david underscore s underscore wilson discovering david's work has had a big impact on my own worldview and my view of human nature and has shown me how an evolutionary view of life has the potential to transform human culture in a way that is optimal for both human flourishing and the welfare of the planet. So I'm extremely excited that he's joining us today. So let's give a warm welcome for David and let's get started. Mm, hello everyone. Uh, so happy to be here and uh, kudos to Niall for um, organizing this uh, uh, public intellectual event. I love the idea of a virtual university um, and all of the intellectual excitement that uh, we associate with being a professor or a graduate student or a college student being made available to uh, everyone. That's a passion of mine, actually, and so Niall is, um, is uh, making it happen. So let's get started uh, with some things that you already know. We all know that cultural change is taking place all around us. We know that much of it is unwanted, a whole bunch is unwanted. I think we all have a sense that, that uh, the deep, deep need for uh, change. Um, but at the personal level, uh, most of us aspire to uh, better ourselves. Every year we make our New Year's resolutions and typically fail to keep them. Isn't that curious that we have these aspirations and yet we find them hard to keep? Um, we often use words such as adapt and evolved in the vernacular to describe our attempts at positive change, and yet we seldom think to consult the actual science of change, evolutionary science. And there's a reason for this, which is that although Darwin thought that his theory applies to all aspects of humanity in addition to the rest of life, and it's very worthwhile going back to Darwin on these topics, on topics such as morality, as we will, as we will uh, uh, see. But with the advent of genetics in the early 20th century, uh, the study of evolution became largely constricted to genetic evolution. And that's represented by this image here. This is actually a mosaic tile in a building, a science building at Notre Dame University. And the outer ring has a famous quote by Theodosius Dobjansky. If you know about evolution, you've certainly heard this quote because evolutionists love to quote it. Nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Darwin said at the end of Origin of Species, there is grandeur in this view of life, the sense that this one theory 
It's so transcendent that it makes sense of everything, everything associated with life. Uh, well, that's what Dobjansky was expressing. Nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And yet, in this mosaic tile, that surrounds a DNA molecule, as if there's no other application to evolutionary thinking than genetic evolution. And that was indeed the case. The so-called modern synthesis of the 1940s was absolutely centered on Mendelian genetics, genetic uh, evolution. So it was a great synthesis. It made sense of so much. Um, and yet it also left so much out. <clears throat> so what was left out? The study of cultural and personal change was ceded to other disciplines, what we call the social sciences, the behavioral sciences, and the humanities. Each of these disciplines developed into a sophisticated body of knowledge, but largely isolated in isolation from evolutionary theory and each other, sometimes even in perceived opposition to evolutionary theory. And so this has led to something which um, I fondly call the knowledge archipelago. Actually, I call it the knowledge and practice archipelago. And I love reflecting upon the concept of archipelagos. Here's a picture of the Malay archipelago. That was the region of the world visited by Alfred Russell Wallace, who also happened upon the theory of um, natural selection. And archipelagos are very diverse, many species, uh, for two reasons. First of all, every island has multiple niches, and so multiple species can evolve on a single island. But also, the islands are isolated from each other, and so uh, with the absence of gene flow, then uh, species diverge for that reason. If a single species colonizes two islands and there's not much gene flow, then they just drift apart. And ultimately, they become um, genetically isolated from each other. So what would a cultural archipelago be? Just imagine uh, scholars forming disciplines and then interacting primarily among themselves without much communication among disciplines. Inevitably, even, the, even if they're studying the same subject, they will develop different schools of, of thought if they're studying different subjects like sociology versus anthropology, for example, or social psychology. Then invariably, their efforts to create meaningful bodies of fact, facts will diverge. And when they diverge enough, there will be mutual incomprehension. <laughs> and so the cultural analog of speciation is mutual incomprehension, many islands of thought with little communication among islands. And what I just said for academic knowledge also goes for practical knowledge, that in any walk of life, let us say business, where somebody comes up with a better business practice, then that spreads to a degree based on its success and then comes up against boundaries, topical boundaries, geographical boundaries, beyond which it is unknown. And so we live in an archipelago of knowledge and practice, and it is essential to go beyond that is part of what I'm here to uh, what I'm here to say. And so it wasn't until the closing decades of the 20th century that evolutionary scientists started to go back to, to details. I should say uh, scientists and scholars across all of those disciplines, across the uh, archipelago, 
uh, went back to basics by defining evolution as any process that combines the three ingredients of variation, selection, and replication. It was only then that terms such as evolutionary psychology, evolutionary anthropology, evolutionary economics were coined, signaling the need to rethink all of these disciplines from a evolutionary uh, perspective. And so what does it mean to go beyond evolution, these evolutionary processes combining these three ingredients? We have genetic evolution. Now we know we have epigenetic evolution, evolutionary change caused by the inheritance of gene expression as opposed to gene frequencies. There's forms of social learning found in many species. Many species have cultural traditions based on social learning. And then more distinctive in our species is symbolic thought. And one of the discoveries actually is that symbolic thought is so distinctively human for reasons that we can explain, um, and I will uh, in just a little bit. So those are transgenerational evolutionary processes, but there's also intragenerational evolutionary processes that take place within us, within our lifetimes. The best known is the adaptive component of the immune system, the rapid evolution of antibodies, uh, but open-ended behavioral flexibility, the fact that we can learn things by trial and error um, is also we can think of as a intergenerational evolutionary process. And the more we just, uh, study these things uh, mechanistically, then we see that neural and developmental processes are turning out to be Darwinian processes. There's terms such as neural Darwinism. Uh, for example, so rapid variation, selection, replication um, mechanisms taking place within us. And of course, we have the whole field of, of um, evolutionary algorithms, which are basically um, selection, variation, selection, replication processes taking place at warp speed, thanks to um, um, electronic, uh, electronic uh, communication. So um, I like to think of this as, as historic, hard to see ourselves as, um, as playing a role in history in, in the making, but I think that's the way that historians will look back upon it. A synthesis for human-related knowledge comparable to the synthesis, synthesis of biological knowledge that took place in the 20th century, which of course uh, uh, continues. And so what we have is a set of conceptual tools that's already proven itself in the biological sciences and can now be brought to bear on all aspects of human experience. Everything associated with the words human, culture, and we will see policy, the tremendous practical uh, utility of this. And so I like to say there's a double benefit of an evolutionary worldview. First, we get to ponder the big questions. We get to, you know, what's the nature of life? What does it mean to be human? What is the nature of religion, morality, epistemology, knowledge, all of these things that philosophers and intellectual dwell upon. Just as Darwin said, there is grandeur in this view of life. How do you, anywhere you turn your gaze for the human condition, we can now see it through the lens of this amazingly simple uh, uh, theory. And if that weren't good enough, then it, it can function as a practical toolkit. So like a plumber or a carpenter, we can show up at the job, size it up, pull out the right tools, get the job done, move on to the next 
next job. So that double benefit, I think, for those who get it, is just tremendously exciting and, and exhilarating. So the sense of excitement is just palpable in this community. Um, so uh, this is actually current tense, present tense, not future tense, for a very sizable community spanning the entire knowledge archipelago. That's, uh, that's great. And I'll be introducing you to uh, some of them in this talk, some of quite a number of books and, and colleagues. So that's the good news. But the bad news is that it's still a tiny fraction of the worldwide academic community, a tiny, tiny fraction. So, so much remains to be done in order for um, that uh, knowledge and practice archipelago to become literate about this view of life. Um, uh, even more unknown to policy experts of all stripes. If I were to say nothing about policy makes sense except from an evolutionary perspective, uh, it would be dumbfounding to 99.9% of policy experts and isn't even reflected in higher education uh, where evolution is still taught primarily as a biology topic and then only in the context of genetic evolution. So if you're a college student and if you're not a biology student, you're not going to encounter this for the most part in your college courses. It's getting better, of course, but it's a decadal process requiring decades, won't be complete until the end of this century and that's not good enough. And so the need for catalysis, a strong theme in my novel, Atlas Hug, uh, the need for cultural catalysis to do something that accomplishes in years what might otherwise take decades or not take place at all is a very important theme that I'm trying to stress in all of my work, fiction and nonfiction, and this, uh, and this uh, talk. So what I hope to do in our time together is first of all, go back to basics with you. Just uh, get us all on the same page with respect to uh, the centerpiece of uh, evolutionary theory, adaptation thinking. Then introduce you to multi-level selection theory, uh, which is uh, 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 huge and has a very complex history. Um, human genetic evolution, human cultural evolution. So this will be like skydiving. We're gonna just hurl through these topics and then I'll try to put on the parachute and drift to some real world applications. We'll take our break, I think, after uh, human cultural evolution. And then, uh, so let's, uh, let's uh, jump out of that airplane and, uh, and uh, go back to basics. Um, the three ingredients of uh, any selection process uh, leading to adaptation to the environment. So what does this mean? Uh, here's a little um, exercise for us. Uh, here's a typical desert. And my question to you is uh, what color are the animals in this desert likely to be? I'll give you one second to give your answer because it's you might think it obvious. Here's another desert. Um, there are black deserts based on the underlying mineral formation. So what color are the animals in this desert like to be? And yes, there are white deserts. What color are the animals in the desert, this desert likely to be? And if you answered brown, black, and white, then you would be correct. Lots of research is being done on this, not only species differences, but within a single species, when there's two adjacent habitats, as in this case, 
so one is a brown background and the other is a white background on the edge of a white desert, then we see three lizard species here and all of them have been selected very locally to uh, match the background of their color. And whenever you care to study the physiological mechanisms of coloration, then you will come up with molecules that, that um, instantiate basically what has been selected by, um, by, uh, uh, by uh, selection. So the reason I love using examples like this is that it leads me to the question, what made you so smart? You were not desert biologists, and yet you still were able to make intelligent guesses about the properties of desert organisms based on just an ounce of evolutionary thinking. What you were thinking, although you might not have been very aware of it, was that actual, actually desert animals vary in their coloration. And then the ones that match their background, they're the ones that survive and reproduce. And so it's for that reason that desert animals match their um, um, background. So you are thinking like an evolutionist in order to make your statements. And as for this trivial example, it's true for any other thing we might care to study about living systems, living organisms, employing that same reasoning. And so this leads to just an amazing kind of instant expertise, which is the centerpiece of Darwin's uh, thinking. And Darwin is able to put that to use by day one, on day one, basically. It's the, it's, it's the, the simple, the most powerful idea is also the, the uh, simplest. And when we expand evolutionary thinking beyond the biological sciences, then we get to use this amazingly powerful way of thinking for our cultures and ourselves as evolving entities, our personal um, evolution. So there's my um, brief overview of adaptation, adaptation thinking. That's what B.F. Skinner calls selection by consequences. When he noted in a 1981 science paper that there's something that our personal histories, our cultural histories, and our history of genetic evolution share in common. In all cases, they endow us with properties that are basically uh, shaped by environmental forces. And notice that we can employ adaptationist thinking without knowing anything about the physical makeup of organisms. We did not need to know about the molecular structure of the desert organisms. As long as their physical makeup resulted in heritable variation, we could ignore their physical makeup. Their physical makeup just provided a malleable clay that was shaped by environmental forces. And so uh, to the extent that that's true, and often it isn't true, by the way, so I'm not saying that we could ignore um, the physical makeup of organisms, but it's astonishing, really, the degree to which we can do just that and then understand the properties of organisms on the basis of the shaping influence of environmental forces. This is a way of thinking that's so powerful that if we can apply it to our personal selves and to our cultures, then by all means, we, uh, uh, we, uh, we should. Okay, so now I'm going to introduce multi-level selection theory through the game of Monopoly. And um, so you know that game. Uh, the goal is to buy up all the real estate and drive the other players um, bankrupt. So just imagine playing that game. And now 
imagine playing a Monopoly tournament in which the trophy goes to the team that collectively develops their real estate the fastest. And um, I think that you can see it's such a wonderful example that uh, every decision you make as a team player will be different than playing the regular game of Monopoly. There will be a burst of conversation. You'll divide labor. You'll pull your money. Uh, and then if you win, there'll be high fives and hugs and, and, um, and uh, uh, congratulations. So well, what it takes basically to, to, um, to beat other players in the single game is completely different than what it takes to work with other players as a team in order to beat other teams. And of course, there's no context in the tournament for cooperation among teams. For that, you would need to add another layer of competition uh, between teams of, of uh, teams. And so that is basically multi-level selection in a nutshell. Evolution is like my monopoly examples. Uh, natural selection at the smallest scale takes place among individuals within single socially interacting groups, like the single game of monopoly, and it results in disruptive self-seeking behaviors. The, the cooperator in a single group is vulnerable to free riding and exploitation by other members of the group. We need to add a layer of competition, of between group competition, in order to explain anything that we can call pro-social, extending yourself for the benefit of others or for one's groups as a whole. We can only explain that by a layer of between group um, competition. And so teamwork does not come for free. It is not the case that evolution just results in teamwork. Special conditions are required, specifically a process of between group uh, uh, selection. And so just to give you a real world example of this, one of my favorite uh, examples is actually the example that I presented to His Holiness the Dalai Lama in my one hour conversation with him included this, uh, uh, this example. So imagine that we're um, animal breeders and we want to breed a more productive strain of hens. Um, hens always have lived in groups. Uh, nowadays, they tend to live in cages, which is sad. But uh, so in both of these experiments, hens existed, lived in cages of, I think, nine hens. In the first experiment, the best egg layer within each cage was selected. And in the second experiment, the most productive group of hens was selected, and then all the hens within those cages were used to breed the next uh, the next generation. So you might think that the first experiment would work well. After all, eggs are laid by individual hens. Why not pick the most productive hen within each uh, cage? But the results told a very different story. Here's the result after five generations, only five generations, and it turns out that the most productive hen within each cage was the biggest bully within each cage, who achieved her productivity by suppressing the productivity of other hens. And bullying is uh, highly heritable in hens. And so in five generations, you had a strain of psychopathic hens that all incessantly attack themselves. Here we have three hens, not nine, because the other six have been murdered. And they plucked each other's feathers in their incessant attacks upon them uh, 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 themselves. 
here's the result of the second experiment where we're selecting the most predictive groups. And now we're selecting the cooperators, the non-bullies, who achieve their productivity at, uh, by basically not interfering and perhaps even assisting um, uh, each other. So here's a graphic, graphic demonstration of how my monopoly experiment does translate into genetic evolution, in this case, artificial selection, but also taking place uh, throughout uh, um, um, nature. And the first time I started to use this experiment, which was decades ago, a, a professor came up to me afterwards and said, my first, that first experiment describes my department. I have names for those three chickens. So that's, that's funny, but also true that if you imagine any group, such as a university department or a business group, which rewards individuals purely for their productivity, then individuals are flexible. Some are more flexible than others, but at some point, what's good, what that system is going to select, basically, what that system is going to breed are individuals or social strategies by flexible individuals choosing social strategies that reward them on the basis of what is selected by consequences, selected by consequences. So genetic evolution has not taken place, but something similar has, something similar has. And Tony Biglin, who is your next speaker, has extensively documented this kind of pathological outcome and for topics such as the tobacco industry, the, the, the big pharma, the food industry, the arms industry, all of the pathologies, basic extreme inequality, we can explain not by bad people, but by selection by consequences, selection forces, cultural selection forces that just take any population and subject them to those selective forces, cultural selection forces, and that's what you'll get. And so we are living in various versions of that first chicken experiment. So we can take this logic that I've explained at two levels, selection within groups and selection between groups, and we can stretch it out into a multi-tier hierarchy. We can go downward, frame shift downward, and we can think about selection among genes and cells within single organisms. Uh, that would be called cancer, as I will get to. Um, organisms within groups, and then groups within groups within within groups. And the same logic pertains. The general rule is adaptation at any level requires a process of selection at that level and tends to be undermined by selection at lower levels. Not hard. I bet most of you get it. But profoundly different than, for example, the metaphor of the invisible hand, which pretends that the uh, uh, the pursuit of lower level interests, individuals maximizing their utilities, firms maximizing their profits, somehow are led as if by invisible hand to benefit the common good. So this is paradigmatically different than the entire tradition of individualism. And I notice as I'm trying to glance at uh, at uh, some of the comments that are scrolling. Here, uh, Katie, you said uh, just reading the selfish gene. Um, and uh, the selfish gene uh, represents, I don't hate Richard Dawkins, by the way, uh, gifted writer and brilliant in, 
in many respects. But he did, of course, was the one of the main proponents against this against this view. And uh, what's important to understand is that that kind of individualism, as if everything about evolution can be explained as a form of individual individuals maximizing the fitness of their selfish genes, is part of something much larger. I mean, it's a, a, which is the tradition of individualism, that everything social can be explained in terms of the thoughts and actions of, of, uh, of individuals. So this permeates economics, where it's homo economicus, permeates the social sciences, where it's called methodological individualism. And this entire tradition swept over Western culture in the middle of the 20th century. I've written about this and we can, and we can uh, uh, talk about it. Before that, you had a tradition of holism, basically. Um, uh, people like Durkheim who talked about society as an organism in its own right. And individuals played their appointed roles within those societies, but the society was the center of analysis. And for reasons that are uh, fun to talk about, uh, some sea change took place, some cultural sea change took place uh, roughly in the middle of the 20th century that led across the board people to think that no, no, society is just what individuals do to each other. And the, and the selfish gene perspective, which began not with Dawkins, but with others, such as George C. Williams, Maynard, John Maynard Smith, these names might mean, mean something too to you, and then Dawkins gave very powerful voice to it, just as Ayn Rand gave very powerful voice to it in, in, um, in economics, that just everything boiled down to a variety of individual uh, self-interest. And, and this multi-level view is a paradigmatic alternative to that, that manifests itself across that archipelago in economics and in clinical psychology. So, and, and this transcendent knowledge that we're talking about, this view of life actually enables a person like me, not by my personal talents, but because of the perspective that I have to actually contribute at the highest level of academic achievement, in other words, peer review publications and, and books on topics that seem so different from each other, such as religion, economics, and clinical science. So I'm not boasting about myself, I'm boasting about this wonderful perspective that caused Darwin to exalt there is grandeur in this view of life and Dobjansky to exalt nothing in biology makes sense, um, except of, and we could all have that. So that's that's what's on, on, uh, on uh, offer. So just to say a little bit about frame shifting downward, that uh, what is cancer? It is mutant cells that proliferate um, at the expense of the normal cells, the cooperative cells uh, within a multicellular organism. It is, it is natural, it is the single game of monopoly being played among cells within um, organisms. Evolution has no foresight. Uh, it's just a differentials, what happens with differences in survival and reproduction. And so, um, and so uh, the idea that we can, understand cancer as selection taking place within multicellular organisms is a, a total game changer 
for the study of cancer. And Athena Actopus in her book, The Cheating Cell, writes about it beautifully. So, so uh, I highly recommend Athena. She's part of this uh, community, uh, present tense uh, community uh, that already has um, has made this paradigm uh, shift. And and just like me. Athena, uh, you know, on Monday she studies cancer, and on Tuesday she studies human uh, cooperation because it's all the same ideas manifesting themselves in different uh, in different um, um, contexts. So, in human terms, what we can say, and again, once you get it, it's very intuitive. What's good for me can be bad for my family. What's good for my family can be bad for my clan. All the way up to what's good for my nation can be bad for the planet. And I've already stressed that um, that this is uh, uh, the opposite of the invisible um, in the invisible hand. Ah, so now doing a quick time check here, and I think I'm in pretty good uh, shape. Uh, so this leads to the concept of major evolutionary uh, transitions, which notes that in many species, Selection is operating at multiple levels. And so often, and what evolves depends on, on the relative strengths of these different levels of, of selection. So in many, many cases, within group selection is the strongest evolutionary force that leads to monopoly-like behaviors, horrible, brutish behaviors, such as uh, killing your baby so that I can have my own various forms of um, infanticide. I mean, so many <coughs> animal societies are just horror societies from our perspective, societies in which the bullies took over. And that's just the way it was and will always be as long as the balance of selection is uh, like that. Many primate societies are, are uh, like that. We would hate to live in those, uh, in those uh, societies. But of course, uh, for other traits, because evolution, multi-level selection takes place on a trait-by-trait -trait basis. And so in the very same social group, we might find bullying behaviors in some contexts and cooperation in others. And so it's kind of a mosaic of behaviors that evolve by within or between, between group uh, uh, selection. But that balance between levels of selection is not static, but can itself evolve and occasionally actually very rarely, mechanisms evolve that suppress the potential for a disruptive within group selection. Then between group selection becomes the dominant evolutionary force and the groups become so cooperative that they actually become higher level superorganisms in their own right. Groups permute to organisms when they become sufficiently cooperative. This was first proposed for the evolution of nucleated cells from much simpler bacterial cells by a cell biologist named Lynn Margulis in the 1970s, which is when I was just working on uh, group selection. So she was a fellow renegade biologist and then was generalized in the 1990s back to the recency of all of this by two theoretical biologists named John Maynard Smith, who was actually a fierce critic of group selection in the 1970s, and his Hungarian colleague, Urs Svathmeri, who is still very much alive and working in this um, 
area. And so now this idea has been used to explain uh, everything that we call an organism, uh, such as a multicellular organism, a nucleated cell, and social insect colonies, the bees, the ants, the termites, the wasps, and actually a growing number of, of non-insect species. There's shrimps uh, and a few mammals, such as the naked mole rat, that have made this transition from a near group uh, to a super uh, organism. So uh, everything we call an organism turns out to be a highly regulated and cooperative group of lower level entities that evolved by group level uh, uh, selection. Isn't that amazing? And even more amazing is that now we're beginning to see um, our own species as a major evolutionary transition. On your right, we have a chimp community on an average day. Naked aggression is over 100 times more common in a chimp community than in a small-scale human community. And on the left, we have a group of children uh, playing a game which involves sitting around and telling stories to each other. And uh, I just love the visual image of that circle created by their feet um, as a kind of a, a, kind of a, a parable of human cooperation, which is which just pervades human human uh, uh, human uh, uh, life. So the story of multi-level selection and human evolution. Here's some more members of this community for which this is all present tense. Christopher Bohm, uh, just a wonderful anthropologist, and uh, Richard Wangham. Uh, his more recent book, The Goodness uh, Paradox, which describes human evolution as a form of self-domestication. We domesticated ourselves in the same way as we domesticated our animal um, uh, companions. And so why is it that uh, humans are so cooperative? Uh, both Bohm and Wangham will tell you social control, social control. Bullies get their way in chimp societies, but not so much in human societies. Bullying behavior is successfully opposed and has been for a very, very long time. And what would social control be but a major evolutionary transition? By definition, a major evolutionary transition is the suppression of the potential for a disruptive between group, within group uh, competition. And it's very instructive to think of our moral psychology as like an immune system, which is designed to protect against cancerous, cheating uh, um, uh, behaviors. And so it's thanks to our moral psychology, let me see what my next uh, uh, slide is, that, uh, that we're able to resist cheat, uh, uh, bullying behavior and other forms of disruptive behavior as well as we, uh, as well as we uh, uh, do. And just like the immune system, uh, it's always present, ready to be activated, often challenged, and sometimes overcome. And so it's not as if our impulses for various forms of selfish behavior have gone away entirely. They, they exist within all of us. And yet, in most cases, they're effectively, um, effectively um, uh, uh, suppressed. And so this resulted in um, a single event, basically a major evolutionary transition resulted in cooperation in myriad forms, both physical 
and mental. And so now we're seeing just about everything distinctive about our species as a form of uh, uh, cooperation. Physical forms include hunting, gathering, childcare, uh, predator fence, and so on. Uh, but mental forms, you see, we're so accustomed to individualism in psychology that we, when we think of cognitive processes such as perception, memory, decision-making, and so on, we assume that these must, these must be studied at the individual level. But actually, no, all of these take place in group context and are heavily influenced by social behaviors. And above all, our capacity for symbolic thought to be a, um, to become an inheritance system in its own right is, uh, could not take place. You could not maintain an inventory of symbols with shared meaning um, without uh, cooperation. And so this became a separate stream of inheritance. It's called dual inheritance theory. And uh, let me just roll on it a minute because it uh, because it's so important. So if you know a little biology, you know that um, each one of us is a collection of genes. We call that our genotype. Uh, our genes influence uh, everything about us. Anything that you might measure is called our phenotype. And so Mendelian genetics talks about a genotype-phenotype relationship. But because we're humans, every one of us also is a collection of symbols. Let's call that a symbotype in order to stress its similarity to a genotype. And those symbotypes influence many things that could be measured about us, the very same phenotype. And so our phenotypes are actually a product of both our genotypes and our symbotypes, which also interact with each other not only over evolutionary time, but within our lifetimes with the up and down regulation of our, of our genes. There's wonderful studies that show, for example, that a course of meditation will upregulate or downregulate a very substantial portion of our genes. And so there's a, 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 a intimate interplay between our symbols and our genes in our lifetimes and, of course, over evolutionary time. And so this is actually a new way to think about therapy and training, which is part of this paradigmatic change, not just economics, but therapy and training. And so this is basically the way human cultural evolution is being studied. Joseph Henrich is a wonderful colleague at Harvard University. His two books, The Secret of Our Success, and his newest book, The Weirdest People in the World. Weird stands for white, educated, industrial, Oh, excuse me, Western educated, industrial, rich, democratic, um, uh, basically Western culture. And because 99% of scholarship and science takes place in weird culture, we've been confusing our particular culture for human nature, when in fact, human cultural diversity is so much greater than that. And Joe has done a tremendous job in this book and, and uh, basically, this whole concept. Um, and so these are two uh, must-read books on your, uh, on your uh, reading list. This is uh, now we can see human history as a fossil record of multi-level selection. Uh, Peter Turchin is one of the main people here. Uh, his book, Ultra Society, uh, 
studies 10,000 years of history. Um, and I think you can see very much in accordance with the monopoly example that uh, uh, cooperation within group, within group cooperation and between group competition are joined at the hip. Cooperation evolves by between group selection. Between group selection need not be violent, but often is. And so um, that's why the subtitle is how 10,000 years of war made humans the greatest cooperators on earth. If you look, for example, at what historians call the axial age, the emergence of the major religions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Taoism, and, and so forth. Why do they arise when they did? They served as a kind of a social glue, which increased the scale of society. So now societies of tens of millions of people could now be coordinated more than ever before, but always in the context of warfare between group competition at an even larger scale. And so, and the same goes for the modern nations. His book, The Ages of Discord, um, is, a, is a, an amazing uh, uh, analysis of American history during the history of our nation as booms and busts of democracy and equality that could be understood from this uh, perspective. And so uh, this is maybe the single most important book for you to read to understand our nation at this moment of history in, um, in, comparison, to our, uh, in comparison to our past. Wow, I've done it. And so at the three quarter hour mark, when we're supposed to take our break, I have now raced through adaptationist thinking, multi-level selection theory, human genetic evolution, human cultural evolution. And now we all get to take a break and um, uh, and convene after five minutes. Isn't that right, Niall? It's about, about 10 minutes too. So yeah, just, just after that. Okay. David, if you'd like, you can turn your uh, mic and your camera off during the break. You have that option. Um, there's the two icons at the bottom. Oh, yeah. If you okay. just click either of those.
So, David, whenever you're ready, we can just get going again. Okay. I'm just... Um... Hold on a minute. Here we go. Okay, I'm just texting the website for my novel, Atlas Hugged. Uh, Atlas Hugged is a fictional version of all of this, um, and it is uh, available on its website, atlashugged.world, which where it is gifted, not sold. And so, uh, so uh, this view of life is my nonfiction version. Atlas Hugged is the fiction version, and of course, there's these many, many other books that we can uh, that we can. Um, um, that I'm happy to uh, uh, tell you about. Okay, well, let's dive in now to real-world um, applications. This is uh, my own efforts at this, is my new nonprofit, Pro-Social World, which is um, uh, turns all of this into a practical um, uh, methodology. And um, part of our method for working with real world groups owes uh, itself to uh, this person, Eleanor Ostrom, a political scientist who received the Nobel Prize in economics in 2009. And what she did was she studied groups that manage common pool resources, such as forests, fields, fisheries, and irrigation systems. And these um, uh, resources are vulnerable to what's called the tragedy of the commons. That's a phrase that was made famous by the ecologist Garrett Hardin in a 1968 science article, who pointed out that, um, that um, basically vulnerable to a form of, uh, of cheating, that, um, that um, every uh, individual has an incentive to take more than their share of the common pool uh, resource and then overexploit that uh, that resource. And conventional economic wisdom was that the only way to avoid the tragedy of the commons was to privatize the resource, if possible, or to impose top-down regulations. But what uh, Ostrom showed by actually studying common pool resource groups around the world was that some, not all, but some, were capable of managing 
their own self-managing their resources, but only if they possessed certain core design principles. And that was the achievement that um, earned her the Nobel Prize. And so here they are. And uh, as I go through these very quickly, um, I want you to think about a group that's important in your life. Think of some group that you know well, that group might work well or poorly, but just uh, see if these core design principles might be useful for a group that you know well. So what she showed was the groups that work, the common pool of resource groups that work, first of all, they had a strong sense of identity and purpose. They knew that they were a group, what the group was about, who was a member, that it was important, so on and so forth. That was essential. Uh, number two, there was a fair distribution of costs and benefits. Not sustainable for some members of the group to do the work and for other members to get the gain. That's within group selection in action. Uh, number three, decision-making was fair and inclusive. Not sustainable for some members of the group to call the shots and others not to have a say in the decision-making process. Not only is that a recipe for unfairness, but also does not make use of the wisdom of all members of the group. Number four, agreed upon behaviors need to be monitored. We need to know if we're doing what we should for coordination, if nothing else, but also to detect those disrupting, disruptive, self-serving uh, behaviors. If you can't monitor agreed upon behaviors, then all bets are off. Number five, graduated sanctions for misbehaviors. If you're not doing what you should, something needs to be done about it, but it doesn't have to be harsh or unfriendly. Uh, most of us are well-meaning and, um, and we just need to be reminded basically to operate in solid citizen mode. And so, and so the first response should be friendly, but of course it, it must be possible to escalate when necessary. And we should be praising each other and rewarding each other for good behaviors at the same time as we're correcting each other for uh, deviant behaviors. Uh, six, conflicts will occur and they must be resolved in a way that's fast and fair. In a dispute, most parties think that they have a reasonable point of view. So um, the first core design principle basically defines the group. Um, two through six regulate interactions within the group. And then the seventh and eighth pertain to between group interactions. First, a group has to have the authority to self-govern itself. It must have a degree of elbow room or autonomy. And then there must be appropriate relations with other groups that reflect the same core design principles. And this is a huge point, is that the core design principles are scale independent. They are needed for interactions among groups in addition to interactions within groups. Back to the monopoly example, where the single game provided no context for cooperation among members of the group. The tournament made group cooperation the key, but provided no context for, for cooperation among teams. And then you need another layer of competition among groups of groups in order to, for the between group interactions to become uh, uh, cooperative. And I think you can see just on the basis of, of um, our time together here, how well these core design principles map onto multi-level selection theory. Eleanor Ostrom didn't know about 
multi-level selection theory once you derive these principles, but they go together very well. And so I worked with her um, for three years prior to her death. We generalized the core design principles to show that they apply not just to common pool resource groups, but to any cooperative endeavor. And so that leads to this bold prediction here that what she showed for one type of group holds for all kinds of groups, no matter what type of group you were thinking of, families, neighborhoods, schools, workplaces, military units, you name it. We will find, if we study them, we will find variation in how well they perform at their stated objections. And the bold prediction is, is that that variation in their performance will map on to how well they uh, correspond to the, uh, they implement these core design uh, principles. Here's one study that we did in order to test this. Basically, this study was a survey study in which the participants did what I asked you to do to imagine a group that you know well, provide information <coughs> on how well they perform and how well they implement the core design principles. And this graph is a little busy, but the main take home messages here is that there was for all groups, uh, oh, I, I, I forgot to mention, they were asked to do this twice, once for a business group, a place of employment that they know well, and then again for any other kind of group of their choice. So we were specifically comparing workplace groups with other kinds of groups. And so the take home message is that a very strong correlation between the performance of the groups on five measures, including trust, cooperation, um, um, and uh, I'm not reading the tiny uh, print here, but five uh, performance outcomes for the groups, a very strong correlation between how well the group performed and how well they implemented the core design principles. That's the second column there. Uh, very small interaction effects. Um, and uh, so basically what this is saying is, is that all groups need the same core design principles, including business groups, just as much as any other kind of group. But in addition, business groups are, uh, on average, are deficient in every core design principle. So something about business groups causes them to fail to implement the core design principles. The three biggest deficits are the seventh, local autonomy, uh, the first, sense of identity and purpose, and the third, decision-making. So in plain English, many people in their jobs can't do their jobs as they see fit, don't find much meaning in their jobs, and um, are not part of the decisions that influence their workplace. So how interesting that workplace groups are, are deficient on average, and um, very likely to be because of uh, individualism, basically, which uh, caused these core design principles, as commonsensical as they are, are um, um, to basically become invisible against the background of orthodox economic uh, uh, theory. Another example of a theory acting as a kind of a symbotype, which influences what you see, what you perceive, what you pay attention to, and what you don't, and therefore how you act, including how you structure your groups, uh, including your, uh, including your uh, workplaces. So that's the point I'm making in this uh, slide here. The theory decides what can be seen. 
against the background of standard economic theory, such as Milton Friedman telling us that the only uh, social responsibility of a business is to uh, maximize profits for its shareholders, the so-called shareholder value model, that will organize your experience, what you pay attention to, and will cause you to structure business groups differently than if they're guided by the core design uh, principles. So here's a huge practical benefit for groups of all types, um, which we can understand in terms of, uh, of uh, dual inheritance theory. Once we exchange um, standard economic theory with, uh, with uh, multi-level selection theory, then right away we'll be seeing the world a different way and structuring our groups in a different, in a different way. So this is a very exciting uh, development. And it's a part of what we've been doing with um, um, clinical psychology. Here's a special issue, a brand new special issue of the premier journal Clinical Psychology Review on integrating evolution and clinical um, uh, science. Uh, so we could provide uh, links to, to that. And uh, my article in this special issue with a wonderful man named Jim Cohen, who I think I'll be talking about in just a minute, more about his work, is titled Groups as Organisms, Implications for Therapy and, uh, and uh, uh, Training. And so let's think about therapy and training as a form of managed um, personal evolution. Uh, we can think that each of us is to a large extent an open-ended evolutionary process, so selection by consequences, as V.F. Skinner put it. And just as genetic evolution, if we don't manage it, uh, often results in problems, not, um, um, not solutions, often results in outcomes that benefit me, but not you, us, but not them, our short-term benefit, but not our long-term benefit. That's also true for our personal <coughs> evolution. So if uh, life isn't working out well for you, it might be that you, there's nothing wrong with you. You're a perfectly healthy individual but your particular evolutionary process has taken you to a place where basically uh, uh, you don't wanna go and you need to manage your personal evolution in order to align them with your normative uh, uh, goals. And so uh, people like Steve Hayes and myself are increasingly thinking of therapy and training as a process of managing our own personal evolution. Steve is the founder of a kind of uh, therapy and training called um, um, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy or Training. Here's his most recent book, The Liberated Mind. And there's just so much evidence on behalf of this method, Acceptance and Commitment Training. Hundreds of randomized control trials on an entire constellation of behaviors. Uh, the distinction between therapy and training is um, is important. If you imagine how well you function as a kind of bell-shaped curve uh, from the best to the worst, if you're on the um, low-functioning end of that curve, then you're highly distressed, and often we say you need therapy. But no matter where you are on that curve, even at the top end, you can benefit from training. Even elite athletes benefit from training. And so these very same methods are effective not only for for um, such things as anxiety and depression, which we associate with uh, with therapy, but also with such things as academic performance and sports performance, which we associate with uh, 
with uh, training. Here's just one example, <coughs> excuse me, of this uh, evidential basis. This was a study of um, public school teachers who were responding to a wellness program. Basically, they were experiencing burnout so much that 75% of them were above clinical cutoffs for general mental health, depression, anxiety, or stress. And what the study did was have them read a book, not see any trainer or therapist, just read a book on acceptance and commitment training and to work through its exercise. It was a randomized weightless treatment. That means that the participants were divided into two groups. Both groups were assessed at the beginning. One group read the book right away. That's the lower line there. And the other group waited for a period, and then they read the book. And so what we see, I hope you can see my cursor, is that the first group, there was their baseline, highly distressed. They read the book, did the exercises. They got a lot better. Here are the weightlisted treatment. They were assessed. They were assessed again. There's not a difference between those. Then they read the book, and they had their improvement. So that's wonderful. Um, but the part about this I love the best is the, is the difference between the post and follow-up. So here they are, they got the benefit, and then they're tested, I think 10 weeks later, and they could have stayed the same, they could have relapsed, but instead they got still better on their own. And so what this meant was, is that they internalized something by reading the book, it changed their symbotype, and then on their own they practiced and they got still better. And so this was, literally transformative for them, just reading the book. And uh, the, reading the book with, provided about one third the benefits of actually seeing a uh, trained act, uh, actor trainer. So you really wanna know about acceptance and commitment uh, training. And it's one of the building blocks that we use in ProSocial. Here's how it works, it's not difficult. Um, a very fast form of it is called the matrix. We call it the noticing tool. And it's a four quadrants, a space divided into four quadrants. On the top half, we have our inner thoughts and feelings. Uh, that's our symbotype. That's our symbolic meaning system, what's inside our heads. On the bottom, we have our outer actions. That's our phenotype, what people can see us doing. And so the basic distinction between the phenotype and the symbotype is the top and bottom of the graph. That's represented by the figures. Above the line, we have our heads and hearts. Below, below the line, we have our hands and feet. Um, on the right and left, distinguish between our thoughts and actions that take us towards our valued goals uh, versus away from our valued goals. And so uh, just uh, now imagine something that's important in your life let's say an important person, and we'll begin in the top right quadrant and just think about what is important, why is this person important to you? What values does this person represent in your relationship to this person represent? So think about that and think about words and phrases that you might write in that top quadrant. And then let's move down to the bottom right quadrant and ask the question, well, how would you behave on the basis of those values? What would you actually do that could be seen with this person that's so 
important to you. And so imagine filling out a list of behaviors and that becomes your target of selection. This is now your basically what, how you would like to behave that moves you in the direction of your valued goals. In this case, a relationship with a person, but it could also be the objective of a group. Okay, well, that's great and aspirational, but now let's acknowledge the fact that actually what's in our heads, what's in our minds that actually works against these valued goals that perversely hook us and cause us to behave in ways that interfere with the relationship that we might have with this person. We might want to control them. We might be jealous of them. We might fear that they're, they're going to go away from us and so on and, and so forth. And notice that these things, which, which are adaptive in a, a lower sense, we get our way when we behave in, in, these, in these ways. So they're not hard to understand from an evolutionary perspective, but they're like lower level selection, basically. They're things that we get, that we're impelled to do, and yet they actually take us away from our value goals. And they result in counterproductive actions. And so reflecting upon our experience and in terms of this space, we are at the center of this, um, of this uh, space, noticing our thoughts and actions, whether they're towards moves or away moves, turns out to be helpful all by itself, basically a symbol type change all by itself that um, can help you stay on the right side of the noticing tool. There are studies, including a very recent one, that, that presented a, a version of this in a 15-minute intervention. 15 minutes presented this way of thinking to couples. And it was a well-designed study. Some couples got this, other couples didn't. And then in some couples, one member got it and the other one didn't. And then the change in their behavior was assessed over a period of time, um, not only by having them play behavioral economics games, um, but also by um, uh, signaling them at random times and asking them to report their experience. This is called the experience sampling method and showing that that 15 minute intervention actually improved the relationships among the uh, couples. Think about that. And of course, there's much greater gains when this becomes um, habitual. Part of all of this is that is that uh, when we think about um, managing our personal evolution, it need not take a long amount of time. Just as with gene therapy, if you can insert a gene, then there's an effect on your phenotype and that doesn't have to require a long time. There's methods of changing our symbotype, and if we know how to do it, then we can get a very short-term um, change in our, our behavior. The benefits of therapy and training, for example, can be very fast, need not take a long time. And so that's a tremendously optimistic thing to, to uh, possibility to, uh, to uh, entertain. And so here's Jim Cohen. Uh, uh, a clinical neuroscientist at the University of Virginia. And uh, he was uh, working with a World War II veteran who had, was experiencing post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, uh, late in life and was not responding to, uh, to uh, anything that Jim suggested. And, um, and so uh, 
uh, the old gentleman uh, during one of the sessions said, I want my wife with me. And Jim had never had this request before, but he said, okay. And at first he treated his wife as a bystander and the old man was no more receptive than before. And then his wife said, let me hold his hand. And so Jim said, okay, and she did. And the gentleman became receptive to therapy, opened up and became receptive to uh, therapy right then and there. And Jim was amazed. He said, what's going on in this person's brain as a result of holding hands? So he embarked upon a whole set of experiments in which he would put people, just any person, in a fMRI machine so you can see what's going on in their brain, and then strapped electrodes to their ankles to threaten them with electric shock. And of course, this was really stressful, and so their brain was activated uh, by this uh, threat. And he did this under three conditions, uh, alone, holding the hands of a stranger, and holding the hands of a loved one. And holding the hands of a loved one had this tremendous calming effect on the brain. So this led Jim to formulate something called social baseline theory, which notes that the one constant of, human of the human ancestral environment is to be living in highly cooperative groups. And so our brains and bodies evolved in the context of having not only personal resources, like your fat stores and the food that you have available, but also social resources, the, the kind of social aid that you can get from trusted others. And so the brain, our brains and bodies do not make that distinction. We, we are designed to seamlessly integrate personal and social resources when making our many trade-off decisions, such as how much energy to allocate to our immune systems, for example. And so separating an individual from a cooperative nurturing group setting is is basically putting an individual in a stress zone. It's a little bit like separating an ant from the ant uh, colony. And a wonderful experiment by a colleague of uh, Jim's called Dennis Prophet involves taking people to the base of a steep hill like this and doing it under a number and having them estimate the slope of the hill. And to do this under different conditions that deplete your personal resources, such as before and after fasting, before and after a workshop, a workout, with or without a heavy backpack. And the result is, is that when you deplete a person's personal resources, not only are they less inclined to climb the hill, but they also perceptively experience the hill as steeper. That's one reason that they don't want to climb it, is they actually see it as steeper. And so against that background, we can add a fourth condition, you alone or you standing next to a friend. And when you do that, the presence of the friend makes the hill appear less steep. Your brain has factored in a social resource seamlessly along with personal resources. So this is a wonderful demonstration of what Jim calls social baseline uh, um, uh, theory. And so Jim is one of the people who is part of this present tense community that I've been talking about. And in my conversations with him, he 
the Count had, when he actually got this way of thinking, this view of life, and it was not in his professional training. So he was, he was basically, his professional training did not include um, this um, evolutionary way of thinking, as strange as that might seem. And so, um, and so he said, I had this kind of personal and intellectual crisis where I thought, holy shit, what have I been doing all this time? I've been thinking about constructs that aren't tethered to any ultimate goals or ultimate constraining principles. That's the shaping influence of selection operating on all these different scales, genetic, cultural, and personal. In psychology, anything goes because the thinking isn't constrained by these imperatives of biological organization and ontogeny. So this illustrates how much of academic and clinical psychology actually has not yet um, um, uh, become literate about this evolutionary way of thinking. Okay, so I think I'm pretty well on track here. Uh, here's the take-home points of my lecture, more to evolution than genetic evolution, a theory that's already proven itself in the biological sciences can be applied to cultural and personal change, already progress, already in progress within a large and thriving community. This community is still a tiny fraction of the worldwide academic community, an even tinier fraction of those working for positive change in real world settings. And so an urgent need to catalyze the completion of the Darwinian revolution to become wise managers of evolutionary processes. If we don't do this, evolution will still take place, but will result in problems rather than solutions. And so for more, this view of life, or if fiction is your cup of tea, Atlas hugged. And thank you for your attention. much for a fascinating presentation um you've packed a lot you've packed a lot in there in the space of i don't know an hour and 20 minutes that's pretty it's pretty powerful stuff um we've got quite a few questions coming through so i think we'll just get started with the q a all right sure okay so the first one's from ruth and ruth asks how could we use this model to make politics more cooperative and also, can you explain with with more examples how the different levels work? And I, I assume Ruth's referring to multi-level selection there. Yeah, so with politics, we find um, a lot of examples. We can a general point I want to make is that if you you can as we look upon this archipelago of knowledge and and practice, then um, then um, often we find uh, ideas and, and practices that have converged upon these principles. They didn't know about evolution. They didn't necessarily talk about it in that language, but they actually did end up applying cultural evolution at a larger scale. And that's, and that's why these nations, the, the, these successful practices evolved. And also um, to get to this question, it's very often when we think about, when we think about, um, um, large-scale issues, it's helpful to shrink them down and to think about what they look like at the scale of a small group. And so beginning at the scale of a small group, a fundamental distinction is between 
what's called dominance and prestige. Dominance is what you take by power. Dominance is the kind of bullying where you're simply in a powerful position and then you use that position for your own gain. Prestige is something which is bestowed upon you by others. It's the reputation that you have. And you can only cultivate a good reputation by actually benefiting for, on behalf of others. You might benefit as well. In fact, you might benefit very well. Someone with a high reputation typically offer, uh, occupies a leadership position and prospers along with everyone else. And so the difference between a chimp society and a small-scale human society is that a chimp society is mostly dominance-based and a human society is mostly prestige-based. People are working, competing with each other for a high reputation, which requires for them to be solid citizens. Now, against that background, scale that up, and you can find political leaders, such as our recently departed Donald Trump, as basically a bullying tactic and was able to get away from it. This happens again and again and again. I described our moral system as like an immune system, always present, frequently challenged, and sometimes overcome, and sometimes overcome. So that has happened many times in the past and has happened um, what we experienced in that, uh, in that case. We have other leaders in American history, such as uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, um, who behaved on behalf of the, whole, of the whole country. And back to Peter Turchin's American history, what you find is, is that America in the, 19, in the 1830s, after its founding, was uh, among the most democratic and egalitarian of, of nations. Uh, when Tocqueville visited, um, he held it up as a model, of course, of democratic of governance. But <coughs> that led to the extreme inequality of the Gilded Age and the Great Depression, and which the whole country was being more or less fragmented, and, and power was concentrated in the hands of a few elites. It got so bad that Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, realized that he had to save the whole ship, not just behave for his own aristocratic class. And he was criticized by his own peers. He was called a traitor to his class. But he realized that if America was going to survive at all, then he was going to have to make decisions on behalf of the whole nation. So the, um, the bottom line here is that the way politics, when politics works well, and this is like almost banal uh, when, you, when you state it this way, the politicians must have the good of their nation as the ideal that they're working towards. And then they work, although parties compete with each other in a sense, they're competing with each other for the best policies for the nation. And then at the scale of the whole earth, then it's the same thing. Uh, when you look at uh, US presidents such as Woodrow Wilson, they wanted America to serve as a as a basically an example for the rest of the world. They wanted to get involved in global politics. For example, to enter World War II to form to form the United Nations. So this requires having the larger unit, ultimately the whole Earth, as the unit that we're 
serving basically it's our group and then what we do has to be in the service of that of that group that's cdp1 core design principle one what is our group and if our group is a lower level entity then that is surely going to create problems up the scale that's part of the logic of multi-level selection so ultimately this dictates a whole earth ethic we need to have the welfare of the whole earth in mind and then we compete for reputation basically as contributors to global solutions that's really interesting um so a lot of the work that you do and you touch on this theme a lot in uh, atlas hugged is it seems to be around cultural uh, catalysis and acting as a catalyst for for cultural change and applying evolutionary theory to improve everyday life and for somebody listening to this who wants to do have a similar effect in the world what sort of advice would you give them like how can they best um, how can they best be a catalyst for these kind of changes that that would lead to um, planetary flourishing well in the first place thank you for um, bringing up the concept of catalysis. Let me spend a moment on that, and then I'll get to what any person can, can do. Um, in chemistry, um, a catalytic substance is a substance that you could add to a chemical reaction in a very small amount, and it miraculously speeds up the reaction, um, often by orders of magnitude. And so how does that happen? What the catalytic molecule does is it takes other molecules and it holds them in an orientation that binds them to each other. And then the catalytic molecule is released to repeat the operation. And so that's what causes the, and then it's not used up in the, in the process. And so the idea is, uh, can cultural evolution be catalyzed in this way? And the answer is, uh, yeah, sure, why not? Basically, what we need to do is we need to take agents, individuals or organizations, and we need to hold them in some orientation that causes them to interact with each other and to continue to interact with each other, binds them to each other. And then the catalytic agent, whoever did that, is released to repeat the, the um, uh, process. And you know, a workshop is like that. When you hold a workshop and you get people to interact that would never interact otherwise, you essentially, you've acted as a catalytic agent. So let's do that. Um, and uh, also, it's part of what we already know that cultural evolution uh, can be very fast in addition to very slow. There's examples of cultural evolution that took centuries. I have a conversation with uh, a Greek scholar on, on the classical Greek period, the emergence of democratic forms of governance in classical Greece from this perspective, from a multi-level cultural perspective, which is just the most amazing experience for me to be relating this, uh, of course, seminal period of human cultural evolution to multi-level uh, selection. But it took centuries, like five centuries. The decades go by. And yet at the same time now, especially in the internet age, we have such things as Facebook and the gig economy breaking upon us in a matter of decades. The devices that we can't live without, just a matter of decades. So we know that cultural evolution can be that fast. And yet, and with many, many wonderful outcomes, such as us talking 
right now, amazing positive outcomes, and yet also horrible negative outcomes that we that we're not controlling. And so, just to just for there to be a sense of possibility that cultural evolution can be as fast as what we associate with the gig economy and Facebook and so on, something that could be truly take place in a matter of years, but could be more benign because we understand it and we could manage it. That's within the realm of possibility. It is possible to accomplish things in years rather than decades or not at all. And as to what um, any one of us can do, first is to become literate in this view of life. Just enter this world which already exists and already is well described by, by I've introduced you in this lecture. My books are one entry point, but so also are all those other books. But basically, start with something that already interests you. What are you already super interested in? And then begin to read about it from an evolutionary perspective. And that will usher you into that, that world. And then if you want to get involved still more, then whatever your capacity, that depends on your, your uh, capacity, but, but minimally, there is you. <laughs> so you can begin to think about ACT, acceptance and commitment training. Read that book, The Liberated Mind or other, other uh, books. And, but even better, functioning in the context of small cooperative uh, uh, groups. That is the best thing you can do for yourself is whenever possible, operate in the context of groups that are appropriately structured, that implement those core design principles. What does that mean? First of all, they must be doing something that's meaningful, something that's important, something that, something that implements your values. And in the second place, they do it in a way which is structured to avoid um, disruptive self-serving behaviors and so on and so forth. So getting involved in groups, your current groups, additional groups, implementing those principles to those groups, pro-social is what that's all about. And then better in groups than just on your own, start to interact at a larger scale and your capacity to do that will be variable. Uh, some people will have huge capacities. I get contacted all the time by organizations that are, are capable of working with many, many uh, uh, groups. But uh, everyone has some capacity. And, uh, and I think that uh, the more literate you become and the more you become actively engaged working in group settings, then, um, then you'll begin to basically surround yourself with social benefits in addition to your social resources, in addition to your personal resources, and your brain and body will respond. Your brain and body will respond. Brilliant. Um, so you mentioned there about the importance of starting with something you're interested in and then applying these ideas to, to as sort of like a gateway in. Um, you've recently did an interview with a guy called, I think, Stuart Libman. Um, I'm just going to link that yeah. in the chat. Yes, loads, please. Loads of people that are listening to this um, this talk are helping professionals, whether like they're therapists or coaches or whatever. So if anyone's looking for a good sort of segue in, like that interview is a great, it's a great introduction. So I'd recommend checking that out. 
Um, That's perfect. I'll just elaborate on that. Stu Libman is uh, a member of this uh, community, um, this contextual behavioral science uh, community. He has a um, a uh, what is, it's an organization that's like a children's hospital, except the kids go home. So there's not the kids. There's not beds for kids, but but it offers all the services of a hospital, especially for learning disabled children in the in the Pittsburgh um, area. And he uses the matrix, and he also read and enjoyed Atlas Hugged. And so this long interview, two hours, he gives a tutorial on ACT and prosocial, and then we weave in the novel. And so it is like the best introduction. And uh, and uh, so uh, thank you for mentioning it. And I do hope that uh, that um, our audience here goes uh, straight there. And um, and uh, also, if they're not already a member of this society, the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, and Henry Whitfield, who I think <laughs> he's already spoken, was he your first? Speaker? He was the first speaker. Yeah. Yep, so he's a member, and Tony Biglin is a member and fellow. I'm a member and fellow. That a society consists of almost 9,000 people worldwide, both practitioners and academics, and has been one of the main vehicles for spreading this. So, so um, that's another strong recommendation, is to join the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, and their annual online meeting is in June with many sessions that are on this, um, including some of my own. But uh, so there's another specific recommendation, join ACBS, Google ACBS and join it. I've recently joined as well. I would definitely recommend that. Um, we've got a question here from Charles. Charles says, fascinating talk, uh, two questions. How can one adopt MLS, so multi-level selection in working with narcissistic clients in psychotherapy? And the second is, given the current global situation, we need a global perspective. I'm thinking of Gaia, like the Buddhist view of interdependence, et cetera. How might we apply multi-level selection in such a global perspective? Great. Well, uh, a narcissistic client, uh, of course, is... Um, um, highly oriented towards their own welfare. And so it's very, for, they're very likely to be a disruptor of, um, of groups rather than a, a, uh, a cooperator. There's actually quite fascinating uh, research. There's one study that I know about in which they measured the degree to which a person has a prestige orientation or a power orientation. You can measure that and people differ, of course. Um, and then they had these individuals um, play a leadership role in small groups. They were leaders of small groups in which it was possible basically to, to um, that's a complicated experiment. But the bottom line was, is that the, is that, uh, the, um, the, the power-oriented individuals, a little bit like the narcissistic individuals that I'm being asked about, uh, would very easily uh, subvert the groups, subvert the group for their campaign to remain in the leadership position. They were very prone to do that. Whereas if someone who was more prestige and reputation based, they would not do that so much. So basically, um, when this individual is in 
training or therapy, then the question is what to do about it. Well, most people are flexible, so that would be their starting point. But you would then try to work them into a more pro-social um, uh, frame of mind. That would be the form that ter therapy and training would take. And as to how successful you might be, then um, then that just depends on the success of the um, of the um, of the uh, therapy. But most people are um, are um, amenable to at least some change. Uh, we did an experiment uh, in a in a public school on creating a school for at-risk uh, high school students, students that were uh, flunking all their courses, but almost certainly um, certainly um, uh, uh, drop out if something weren't done. And so we we designed this school around the core design principles, uh, uh, most of these students would score very low on pro-sociality. Um, and so they would be very much, you know, protecting their, their self-interest. But what we discovered was that there was a, a, a strong response to the social environment that we provided. And uh, a lot of these kids became more pro-social, they opened up. The reason that they were self-serving was not because they were like intrinsically self-serving, but they had living in their social environments that they were living in. They basically turned off their, their pro-sociality. To, to be pro-social is to make yourself vulnerable. And if you're in a hostile social environment, then like any sensible snail or turtle, you pull into your shell. And the way you protect yourself is to become more self oriented. Um, and if you provide a nurturing social environment that's appropriately structured, then what these kids did, despite a lifetime of hardship, was they recognized that they were in a, a uh, nurturing social environment, and they came out of their shells. And in fact, they did it very fast. And, and it was like, sad the teacher one of the teachers in the school was a former student of mine and she said you know these tough kids tough kids they just wanted hugs the first thing they wanted was 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 hugs and and the response came in the first quarter i mean so it was i mean the it was just like these kids are just waiting for an opportunity to be pro-social as long as they could step into a nurturing social environment so another another um, uh, um, answer to this to this question and i'm sorry to be so so long-winded and it's, it's very much the article that i wrote with uh, with jim cohen on groups as organisms implication for therapy and training i mean this is actually a perfect point make this point most people in the therapy and training professions they just work with individual clients. It's just like part of the profession is that, the, and then they have sessions with those individuals and that's their entire point of contact. And it's like, if they're gonna change them, then you change them working with them as an individual. But what would happen if your counsel to that individual was to get them to actually find some kind of social environment, like what I've been describing, find one that already exists or assemble one for them now, that individual is immersed in it. You've changed. You did an environmental 
intervention. And if it's an appropriate structured environment, you might find that that individual, which, which we were calling narcissistic, might respond on their own without needing to be told, without needing to be trained, might. And yet at the same time, there are such things as social predators, that basically it's their strategy to be disruptive. And if you put them in a nurturing environment that's not protected, well, they're as happy as can be because they have lots of people to exploit. So that's, a, that's why the environment has to be appropriately structured. The core design principles are protective against that. So in general, obviously we can continue to work with individuals and their symbotypes. That's one thing we can do, but we could also do environmental interventions and we can get people into more um, nurturing and appropriately structured environments and then see how they respond because they're now being select subject to a different set of selection pressures. Selection by consequences has been, has been organized and, and that will be the shaping influence. And so, and so uh, what we're trying to do with pro-social is provide opportunities for, for that. It's like a grand experiment in, in managed cultural evolution. And, and, we can, and, and, uh, and uh, so getting involved in pro-social, beginning by, by um, checking out prosocial.world is, uh, is another thing that you can do. And you guys are working with ProSocial, you're working with organizations like uh, Shopify, is that right? Yes, you work Shopify, the world's second largest online marketing uh, platform is working with us. So there's big companies now starting to take these ideas seriously and you know it's going to be implemented in the real world, which is, which is incredible, you know? Back to, uh, back to cultural catalysis, but on Buddhism, let me say a little bit about my conversation with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which was um, made possible by the Mind and Life Institute. And, uh, uh, and the Mind and Life Institute has been organizing conferences for His Holiness for many decades because His Holiness loves science. And yet the science that's been assembled for him has been very largely psychological science and individual based. And so most all of it and most Buddhist training, mindfulness-based training in the West is at the individual level. It's attempted to accomplish some inner transformation um, and, to, and then is intended to make the individual more compassionate, more selfless. And Buddhism as a tradition is uh, very systemic. The idea of basically abandoning a sense of self um, um, is what Buddhism is all about, but um, is, um, is, is in its current form mostly about an individual inner transformation. And just, make, <clears throat> just making an individual more compassionate does not necessarily result in effective action. And so my, my message to His Holiness was that there must be an outer transformation in addition to an inner uh, transformation. And, uh, and that outer transformation has to do with, with uh, basically there's a whole social organizational aspect of it that, which has to go along with it. And, and so um, that's, um, um, 
an important message. I guess one more thing I'd like to say in the process of that, <clears throat> preparing for that conversation, I, I did quite a lot of reading on the history of Tibetan uh, Buddhism. And uh, it's very much along the lines of what I discussed with Peter um, uh, Turchin. It uh, took place, um, if you look at the history of Tibet, incessant warfare at various scales, nothing but never-ending conflict among groups of various sizes. And what Buddhism did, what it expanded the scale of cooperation, it provided that social glue, it enabled societies to function at a larger scale, but always in the context of warfare at a still larger scale, always operating within the context of a feudal society that had never questioned, never challenged until the 13th Dalai Lama, never held very enlightened views about gender, for, for example. And so we really have to understand, and that's also true for Greek democracy. All of these movements are expanding the scale of cooperation, but only to a degree. There's always sectors of the population that are, that are left out. The Greeks had their slaves in addition to their democratic uh, governance and so on and so forth. And so the modern ideal of, of, of universal morality that extends to everyone and extends to stewardship of the planet in addition to, to uh, uh, just being too human-centered is was never imagined until recently. Could not be imagined until quite recently, but but is still achievable. But uh, this is important when we evaluate steps along the way, and we can see them as positive steps, basically in the expansion of cooperative governance, but to always see their, their limitations and don't judge them against modern sensi sensibilities. I think we really have to be good historians when we, when we, uh, when we do that. 100%. See, going back to the, the Buddhism thing, you said, you know, there has to be inner transformation, but outer transformation as well. And that, I suppose that links back really well with multi-level selection. Um, natural selection has to happen at multiple levels simultaneously. Um, I'm just curious about, you know, you talk about these warring tribes in Tibet and everything. Um, it seems that we have to move our target of selection up to the level of planetary welfare and everything. And do you think that uh, this sort of evolutionary perspective offers that and are there any other windows that you know of that can that can help people kind of cultivate that perspective because one thing that comes to my mind is that that overview effect you know that that um, idea that when astronauts leave the planet they come back they look back at earth and they get this sort of new sense of perspective on their place in the world and everything like have you thought much about that there and how people can cultivate this kind of awareness yeah, I think about it a lot, of course. And uh, what you said about looking at the Earth from space has that powerful, powerful effect. Um, um, it causes you to just to see the planet as a group, right? Not so easy to do, but that does it for some people. Um, and the International Space Station is uh, amazing as an example of global cooperation. For all that we can't get along, 
we can get a line to build the goddamn space station up up there. We cooperate with the Soviet Union and with this multinational, it becomes a kind of a microcosm of what could take place. So much requires a perceptual shift. And I think looking at the Earth from space is one contributor to that shift, but multi-level selection theory is another, uh, actually much more uh, important contributor because once you assimilate multi-level selection theory, then it leads to what's actually represented in the, by this stack of symbols that we're looking at right here with the earth on top. That means that first and foremost, we must think of ourselves, our primary social identity must be human beings and citizens of the world. Okay? That's my primary. I am a human being and a citizen of the world. And so that my moral responsibility is to behave in ways that are good for the whole planet. But that's not enough, not by any means. I'm also an individual. I have to be fulfilled and I need to form into groups. So the dot is the individual. But whatever I do that's earth friendly also has to be manifested at these scales, at the lowest scales of me as an individual embedded in meaningful groups. And then those groups have to operate through existing institutions that have evolved over the centuries represented by the American flag. But you could put in other flags or, or religious symbols. Uh, cultural evolution always begins with where we are now, with our existing institutions. And so anything that's done globally also has to be done at multiple layers. And a good example of this is, uh, is the donut economics framework of Kate Rayworth, who might be familiar to some readers, but she has very ingeniously represented a whole earth ethic in the form of a donut whose outer boundary is the planetary boundaries, so all the environmental parameters that we need to stay within. And then the inner boundary of the donut are the social boundaries, equity, justice, um, that we must stay within. And so to stay within the donut means reflecting environmental planetary boundaries and reflecting and, and respecting social boundaries. It's a beautiful way of operationalizing a whole earth ethic. But how are we going to implement this? Well, that requires some lower level unit to embrace those values. So Amsterdam, for example, has declared itself a donut city. And so now Amsterdam is then working with neighborhoods. So a neighborhood can become a donut neighborhood. It's at this point that an individual at the bottom of that stack can form into groups such as neighborhoods, and they can be then presented with resources so that they would know what they might do in order to stay inside the donut and all the social reinforcement of we did it and so on and so forth would be then brought to bear. All of the norms would be brought to bear upon that, orchestrated by Amsterdam and then, you know, the Netherlands and so on and so forth. So there's the full multi level system, all oriented towards the highest good, the welfare of the earth. It's not hard. And in fact, it's taking place. So this is something which actually, once you get it, once you, there's your symbotype basically, becomes this multi-level view, then a lot just kind of makes sense 
And a lot that previously makes sense no longer makes sense. So there's the symbolic shift. And then there's the action that must take place on the basis of that symbolic shift. But it could take place in years. It could. Wow. Okay. Um, we've got one here from Hugh. Hugh asks, can you talk about the many unconscious forces that lead to our overall development? Is your understanding that if we are to shape our society in a pro-social way, it will be through conscious decision-making? And what of the unconscious forces? And I suppose just leading on from that, like you've spent a long time writing your first fiction novel. And I'd be curious to ask, you know, you've obviously seen that as a very, very important thing to do, you know, to, to convey these ideas through fiction. And, and just why might that be? as opposed to just putting out another nonfiction book? Okay, great, on both counts. And I'm happy for that question because uh, when we think about our behavioral system as like the immune system, that's a very powerful metaphor. What we know about the immune system is that it includes what's called an innate and adaptive component. The innate component is, of course, a product of genetic evolution, oh, amazingly elaborate. No one fully understands the innate component of the immune system, highly modular um, and does not change during our lifetimes. Then there's the adaptive component, our rapidly evolving antibodies. Now, the behavioral equivalent to that is our human psychology has this huge innate component. And if you're familiar with the field of evolutionary psychology and the concept of massive modularity, then think of that as like the innate component of our behavioral system, all these modules taking place beneath our conscious awareness being triggered. Uh, we have, you know, I mean, we have us versus them modules. We have, uh, I just had a great conversation with a colleague in this, Deborah Lieberman, who talks about disgust and the role that disgust plays in moral system. She studies incest avoidance. She has a rich view of this innate component of our behavioral system and so as we go about lives the environment triggers these modules and they get expressed that goes on for sure but so also does the adaptive component this open-ended component and the problem with evolutionary psychology was that it actually rejected the adaptive component it called it the standard social science model it rejected the skinnerian tradition and made it sound as if this massive modularity was the only thing that existed which is stupid so now when we fully embrace the concept of our behavioral system as our immune system, there's room for both the adaptive component and the innate component. And it's here where stories come in. Uh, we think the adaptive component of our behavioral system takes place very largely through stories. And actually, Neil, how much time do we have left? Uh, three minutes. Okay. Um, I did a piece of work with a, my, one of my grad students, Yasha Hartberg. Um, it was titled Sacred Text is Cultural Genomes. And what it noted is if you take something like the Bible, there's an intriguing similarity with a genetic system. It's linear, there's books like chromosomes, they're subdivided into chapters and, and verses. And, so, and there's the replication with high fidelity. And what happens at any particular moment you can think of this sacred text as this huge collection of stories. 
And at any particular moment, you invoke sections of the sacred text in a way that's apropos to the current moment. And so that's like gene expression. And we actually did wonderful research showing that when you compare, for example, conservative and liberal Christian denominations, and you look at their sermons and the passages of the Bible that they invoke, you can produce heat maps of biblical expression. And you can show that the reason that conservative churches and liberal churches are so different from each other is because they're invoking different sections of the Bible. Just the same way our liver cells and our skin cells invoke different gene expressions. And so it's all done through the expression of stories. And so we can think of a story as a vehicle for imbibing a moral world view. This is something that nonfiction does not do. As scientists, we're trying to simply arrive at the facts of the matter. And what that causes us to do is an extra step. But with fiction, the values are all wrapped up in the story. And this is why fiction is so much easier to imbibe. When we're reading a story, we're, it's, it's a different process. And if we like the story, then we embrace it and we want to turn it into a, a reality. And final point, and this I covered nicely with Stu Libman, and that is that uh, the whole distinction between fact and fiction is blurred. Because when we think about what's called social constructivism or niche constructionism, that's basically the whole point of managing cultural evolution is to bring something into an existence that didn't exist before. And so that's like, what would that be but turning fiction into fact? So the whole distinction between fiction and fact, the role of fiction in serving as vehicles for moral worldviews, the natural way to imbibe them, is what makes Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand's book, so influential. And I would love for my book, Atlas Hugged, <laughs> to be as influential as a vehicle basically for imbibing a moral worldview. And then of course you can check back and we can make sure that it's science-based, which is just as important. A hundred percent. Well, um, you know, I'm reading it at the minute and it's, it's fast and it's, it's an incredible read. So where can people um, get that online? What's the, what's the domain where they can pick that up? Well, I think if you just type Atlas hugged into Google, you'll get there. It's only sold on its website because it is gifted, not sold. Um, and uh, all proceeds go to a pro-social um, world, gifted for whatever the reader wants to give in return. And so Atlas hugged or www.atlashugged.world, it takes you to the website with um, quite a few podcasts now. And we'll be doing one now. That'll be a lot of fun. So uh, actually, this conversation will continue when we do our podcast. For sure. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. Um, we're getting some great feedback there, too. So I think people have, you've opened a lot of people to evolutionary theory and the benefits to it. So I think it's been a worthwhile, worthwhile exercise. So before you go, um, you're on your website, DarwinianRevolution.com. Um, any other websites you'd send people, prosocial.world? Anywhere else? Well, this view of life uh, dot com, I think. But this view of life is my online magazine, where this worldview is um, 
is basically uh, presented. So if you go to this view of life, there's just so many articles, hundreds and hundreds of articles on anything and everything from an evolutionary perspective, including one by Joe Henrich, who I was praising his books. Uh, just basically browse this view of life, the online magazine, and it will be this view of life. And you can uh, search for what interests you most, what I was recommending, education, extremism, anything. <laughs> and, uh, and you can get nice accessible um, articles on it. So there's a, a great entry point is um, this view of life. And, uh, and uh, we're beginning to form a engagement circle uh, for pro-social world in this view of life called the Ostrom Circle which is uh, people can join and then uh, can become engaged. And that will be, uh, that will be um, uh, launched in just a few weeks. And so, uh, so um, there's yet another entry point for that catalysis that I was talking about. Brilliant. Well, David, thank you very much. We'll let you get on. Um, everybody else, we're back at 3.30 uh, for the final talk from Dr. Anthony Biglin on uh, nurturance and behavior change. So we'll see you all then. All right. That will be, that will be very much continuous with, uh, with uh, my talk. 100%. All right, everyone. Thank you very much for the opportunity. See you guys.